If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 37 through 41 this morning. If we could all please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Let's go ahead and read responsibly. You haven't done this in a while. I'll read the first verse. Uh, You join me on the second. We'll continue every other verse. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, we ask now that you would bless your word to us, that you would give us insights into scripture and into this text in particular, help us to learn more of uh, what it is that you have for us in in conversion and our salvation. Pray, God, that we would be instructed from this monumental day in the history of the church that you've recorded for us in Scripture. Help us to learn and grow and become more like Christ. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were with us last Sunday, we covered the first 36 verses of Acts chapter 2, really one of the most uh, important texts in all of the Bible. Uh, This is the day of Pentecost. It would be good for us to remind ourselves of that section, uh, since today's text is the rest of what happened. Uh, You notice that in in verse, the very first verse of our text, verse 37, it says, when they heard this. So it's it's building off of what had just been said earlier in the chapter. And so on this day of Pentecost in Acts 2, there's 120 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. They're all together in one place. And all of a sudden, they heard a, a sound like a violent wind. Uh, rushing down from heaven and filling the house where they were staying. They also saw fire come down and rest on each one of them. And at the same time, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. As soon as the Spirit came on them, each one of them began to speak in tongues or different languages as the Spirit gave them ability. And all of this noise drew attention to the house. Very soon, crowds of people were standing outside wondering what in the world was going on. And when they got there, they heard these Galilean Christians all speaking foreign languages. And so they recognized that the language is being spoken. You know, some of these Jews were were immigrants from other places. And so they heard their native tongues uh, being spoken. They were amazed that these uneducated men from from the hill country of, of Galilee were able to speak fluently all of these different languages. In the midst of all of this bewilderment at what was taking place, Peter stands up and gives an explanation. He tells the crowds that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy given by Joel centuries before, that God would one day pour out his spirit on his people and they would prophesy. And then with this captive audience now realizing that this was an act of God, Peter begins to preach. And this really is the first sermon of the New Testament church. He starts off by reminding them about the life of Jesus, the miracles that they had all seen Jesus perform. Then Peter talks about the death of Jesus that they not only had seen take place, but they actually had a part in. Uh, These were the very same Jews in Jerusalem 
who had condemned Jesus to death. They had cried out, crucify him. And Peter doesn't hold back. Uh, He says to them, Jesus' death, it was God's plan from the beginning, but you people are responsible for what you did in crucifying him. And then Peter tells them that Jesus is alive from the dead. This, of course, is kind of the crux of his sermon. Uh, Peter walks them through a few Old Testament texts about the Messiah where God had foretold that Christ would die and rise again. And Peter explains these passages to the people. He tells them that Jesus did, in fact, rise again from the dead and that they had seen him alive. Peter then concludes his sermon with the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father, where he is currently reigning over his people. And he says, you guys know that I'm telling you the truth because the fact that the Spirit has descended on us validates our message. Jesus had done exactly what he had said, that when he he goes to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit, and they are all witnesses to that event that just took place before their eyes. Let's uh, read the last couple of verses of this sermon. Uh, If you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to find it online. It'll be very helpful in forming the next uh, several sections of Acts. But uh, I want to begin just with verse 34 in the last couple of sentences of the sermon. This really leads into the text this morning, which is the reaction of the people to what they had heard in Peter's uh, message. So Acts 2, beginning verse 34, as Peter's concluding his message, he quotes from Psalm 110 about Jesus, and he says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's where Jesus is right now, uh, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He's ascended there, and he's staying there until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And then comes the last line of the sermon, Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is the climactic end to Peter's sermon. You can imagine if you're in the crowd that day, you were there a few weeks prior crying out, crucify him. And Peter keeps pressing that point that this is Jesus that you guys killed. He isn't letting them off the hook for what they did. Imagine in your own heart as you realize what you've done. These are devout Jews, religious people, and they killed their Messiah. And Peter also just told them that Jesus has been raised back to life. The only thing worse than the feeling that you killed the wrong guy is hearing that he's alive again, because that means you're in trouble. What's more, Peter says Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he's going to stay there until all of his enemies are brought under his feet, and you guys killed him. So this is a terrifying moment for these Jews. Can you imagine being told, hey, hey, remember that man you guys were all in favor of killing? That was God. Talk about frightening. So you can imagine that these Jews in Jerusalem, they're thinking as they realize what they have done, as the guilt hits them, but also fear of what this means for them and of the judgment of God that no doubt awaits them. And so verse 37 gives us the reaction of the crowds. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You can hear the desperation in their voice as they realize what they've done. Verse 38, amazingly, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Amazing grace. 
the very people who killed the Son of God are given an opportunity to be forgiven and saved from the wrath of God against them. Repent, be baptized, you'll be forgiven of all your sins, including the most heinous sin that's ever been committed, the, the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so Peter says, not only will you be forgiven, not only will you not face God's judgment against you, but you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like we have. God is going to come and dwell within you. Verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, <clears throat> save yourselves from this crooked generation. I think we have to understand that last sentence in light of something we saw many times in our study of Luke's gospel. Jesus repeatedly spoke against this generation, particularly in Jerusalem. <clears throat> These were the, the Jews <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus had said was an, an evil and unbelieving generation. And they would be judged severely. I think specifically this is referring to the judgment of God in AD 70 when Jerusalem <clears throat> was going to be attacked by the Roman armies <clears throat> and the temple would be destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews would be killed. And so Peter is, I think, not only urging them to come to Christ and to be forgiven and experience salvation from God's wrath against their sins, but he's also urging them to escape the soon-to-come judgment that God would send on Jerusalem for killing his son. You remember in Luke, Jesus had said, this generation will not pass away until this judgment comes. And so Peter is saying to them, don't be swept away with the rest. God is extending to you another chance to escape his fierce judgment that is coming. And of course, those who did respond to this message would be able to escape the carnage of AD 70 because Jesus had given them signs to look for. He said, when you see these certain things taking place, get out of town. And that's all back in Luke 21, if you're interested in looking that up. Verse 41 records the response of the people. It says, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this is the start of the church in Jerusalem. It begins with 120 people gathered in the house. And then uh, within one day, it's up to 3,120. Just an explosion of people here in Jerusalem. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning considering what this text teaches us about conversion. Uh, when we talk about being converted or being saved, the main issue we're referring to there is our standing before God. A saved person is one who has their sins forgiven, and thus they will not face God's judgment against them. Jesus took the punishment for their sins on the cross. But the question is, how is it that one obtains salvation? How can we enter the kingdom of God and be assured that we have eternal life? This, this question really gets to the heart of Christianity. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad teaching out there that seeks to answer this question in an unbiblical way. How can we be saved? The legalist says, by keeping the law. The moralist says, make sure you do enough good works to outweigh your bad works. The universalist says, don't sweat it, we're all going to make it into the kingdom in the end. The ritualist says, make sure that you take communion, uh, maybe confess your sins or get baptized right before your death. The easy believist says, just believe in Jesus and know a few facts about God and the gospel and you're in the kingdom. The question we want to ask this morning is, what does the Bible say? Uh, what are some marks of genuine conversion to Christ that we see here in our text? Uh, Luke tells us that here this day, 3,000 people were saved. How were they saved? What did they do in order to be saved? And how can we know if we're saved or not? 
If our conversion is genuine? Uh, those are the questions we're going to seek to answer this morning. So I've got six marks here of genuine conversion. Uh, the first one is found in verse 37, where it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Conviction of sin is the first mark of genuine conversion. And by the way, all of these marks are essential, uh, but none of them are in and of themselves enough. Uh, you've got to have all of them in order to experience true conversion. And there's a sense in which none of them are your own doing. Uh, you don't co conjure up faith in the gospel or conviction of sin. Uh, this is God's doing in your heart. We'll get to that later, but I just want to mention it in passing now because I don't want anyone to think this is some sort of a step-by-step -step process by which you can have your sins forgiven. Uh, you don't do any of this on your own. God does it in you. But if you want to assess whether or not you have been saved, whether or not your conversion is genuine, these are marks of what it looks like when God works salvation in a person's heart. And so we've got, first of all, conviction of sin. You must understand your need of a Savior. I think a lot of people today don't care too much about Jesus dying for their sins because they don't understand how desperately they need salvation. We don't see ourselves as sinners in the sight of God. We have this idea that when we die, God's going to go easy on everybody. Of course he's going to let us into his kingdom. And so people go on about their daily lives thinking very little about their standing before God. And sort of assuming that they must be okay, because after all, I haven't killed anyone. I'm a pretty good guy compared to others. But God doesn't grade on a curve. The standard is perfection. And all of us, no matter how decent or moral we may be, we all fall infinitely short of God's standard of perfect righteousness. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Compared to other people around me, compared to other sinners, I might look pretty good. But compared to a perfect and holy God, I look awful. None of us measure up. We all fall short. I like to use the illustration of someone trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. Uh, some people are really good long jumpers. They can jump way farther than I can, but nobody's making it across the Grand Canyon. Uh, we all would fall short. I might fall shorter than you, but we're both not making it. And this is how we think about our sin. We think the only people who deserve to die and face God's wrath in hell are people like Hitler, maybe serial killers, child molesters, the really bad sinners. They deserve hell because our society deems that as sin. But the selfish way that we treat each other, the sinful thoughts that we have, the lies that we tell, the pride that we have, all of that is no big deal to us. Those are all acceptable sins. Our problem is we're letting the culture around us decide what sin is and isn't. And we're letting the culture around us decide what deserves punishment and what doesn't. But if we look to the Bible instead and we see what God says about sin, we will quickly discover that we're all in trouble. We all fall infinitely short of his standard of perfection. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we stand condemned in our sins deserving to face the judgment of God whose laws we have violated. And this is why we need salvation. This is why we need a Savior. We need someone to live a perfect life for us because we can't. We need somebody to take our punishment so that we won't have to bear it ourselves. Our only hope of eternal life, instead of facing God's judgment against our sins, is if someone will come and take our place.
and somebody has. This leads us to the next mark of genuine conversion. In verse 36, you notice Peter says to the people, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, we're not going to take time to go back through all of this text because we covered it last time, but it's important to notice that these people had to know some things. Uh, verse 41 says, Those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so we could say the second mark of genuine conversion is belief in the gospel. These people are ones who, having heard the message that Peter preached about Jesus' death and resurrection, the offer of forgiveness that can be theirs, they then received this word. They believed it. They placed their faith in the gospel. It is essential, therefore, not only that we feel conviction of our sin, that we understand our, our standing before God as rebel sinners, but it is equally essential that we must hear and believe the gospel, the news that Jesus died and rose again in our place. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice that Paul says this gospel must be believed, held fast to, received in order to be saved. You've got to know this and you've got to believe it. And here's the gospel, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that's precisely the message that Peter told the crowds at Pentecost, that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose back to life the third day. And Peter says, believe this, know for certain that this is the truth. God has attested to this message with these signs and miracles that you're seeing right now. Believe the gospel. It is impossible to be saved from your sins apart from belief, believing the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is why it is vital that we as Christ followers spread this gospel message to those who haven't heard of the salvation that Jesus offers. They must hear the gospel of Jesus and believe it. Over in Romans 10, Paul says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You've got to hear the gospel and you've got to believe it to be saved. And the people gathered around that house in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they had just heard a convinc convincing and powerful gospel presentation from Peter. And verse 41 says, 3,000 of these people received his word. They believed it. And so you have the first mark of genuine conversion is conviction of sin. The next is belief in the gospel. And then number three, repentance. Notice in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to, uh, I'm sorry, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's great that the crowds were convicted of their sins when Peter preached. That's a good place to start. They were cut to the heart, but then they had a choice to make. 
Because there are some people who will hear the gospel and they too will be convicted of their sin, but they don't respond with repentance. If you want a good illustration of this, we're not going to turn there right now, but Acts chapter 7, Stephen uh, stands up and preaches a very similar sermon to Peter's, uh, where he preaches to them about Christ, about their um, sin in killing Christ, and they become convicted. They're cut to the heart, and they respond <clears throat> by taking Stephen out of the city and killing him. They become enraged. They grind their teeth. The text literally says they plug their ears and they rush at him because they're so angry. They don't want to hear another word. So they took him out of the city and stoned him to death. See, being convicted sometimes causes us to get defensive or even angry. It's not enough then just to feel conviction for our sins. We've got to respond to that conviction with repentance. Let me illustrate this with something that uh, married people will especially understand. Um, in particular, if you have a hard time admitting that you're wrong, which is true of most people, uh, sometimes you're right in the middle of an argument with someone, and then it begins to dawn on you that you're wrong. Uh, you don't want to admit it, but what the other person is saying is starting to make a lot more sense than what you're saying. And right in that moment, you have a decision to make. You can either double down on your arguing, <laughs> or you can repent. Repentance takes humility to say, I was wrong. I'm going to turn from that and do a 180 and go the other direction, acknowledging my error and turning away from it. That's what repentance is. It's turning around. You were going this direction. Now you're going this direction. You're turning from your sin, from living life however you want, to now you're living a life of following Jesus. You must repent to be forgiven. Now, at this point, the easy believers will object isn't salvation free? How then can you say that we must repent to be saved? Well, that's easy. Joining the army is free. It doesn't cost you anything. You can go down and sign up. Does that mean that you can just go on about your life and never give it another thought? Of course not. Uh, this is a life-altering decision. You're signing up for something. You're committing yourself to a new life. That's what repentance is. It's a decision at the heart level to live for Christ from this moment on. My life is his. I will do his will. I'm turning from my sin, from serving myself, my own desires, to now doing what he commands. This is how we saw Jesus call people to himself all throughout our study of Luke's gospel. He told people to leave everything behind and follow him. He told people to count the cost if they were truly willing to be his disciple. Uh, you may remember one time he said to a rich young ruler that came to him asking, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus told him to give up all of his money and follow him. And the point isn't, by the way, as an act of charity, we need to give money away and that's how we enter the kingdom. No, the point is that last part. Come follow me. Give away your money to the poor and follow me. We're saved when we decide to follow Jesus with our lives. And for this rich man, his money was a barrier in his life that was making surrender to Jesus impossible. And so Jesus says, let that go and follow me. We try to make it easy to become a Christian. We tell people, just accept Jesus. But Jesus did just the opposite. He made it difficult. He called people to surrender everything they have in all of their life to him. He called people to repent. And I have to wonder, why is it that we don't preach like that today? Why don't we call people to abandon their lives and serve Jesus no matter what it costs them? I think part of the reason we don't want to present the gospel that way is we're afraid nobody will receive it. In other words, we lack faith 
and God's Spirit to, tr- to truly work repentance in the hearts of people. <clears throat> but this is exactly the message that Jesus sent his followers out into the world to proclaim. Luke 24, right before Jesus left his disciples, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And Peter is beginning it right here in Acts chapter 2 in the city of Jerusalem. Repent and be forgiven, he says. What amazing grace that God would extend forgiveness, even to these very people who screamed for his blood just a month before. Even they can be forgiven if they will repent. The next mark of genuine conversion is baptism, found in Acts 2, verse 38. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is turning from sin to Christ, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and surrendering your life to him. And you signify that commitment by getting baptized. I often compare baptism to a wedding ring. It's an outward symbol of a commitment that you're making to someone. Uh, We could say, you know, with this ring, I thee wed. Uh, With baptism, I'm committing my life to Jesus. It's an outward display of a decision that I'm making to serve Christ with my life. Now, this leads to some questions. Can you be saved without being baptized? Is baptism what saves a person? Uh, We've talked about all of that before. We'll have plenty of opportunities to dive deeper, uh, pun intended, on baptism in the future. Uh, But for now, here's what I'll say. Throughout the book of Acts, you will find that baptism and conversion are inseparable. They are viewed as one event. Uh, You can see it right here in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people respond to the preaching of the gospel with faith and repentance, and that day, they're all baptized immediately. In Acts chapter 16, an earthquake happens in the middle of the night. Paul and Silas then have the opportunity to present the gospel to a guy right there. And the text says that he was baptized that same hour of the night. They didn't even wait until morning. And so there's no concept in the book of Acts of someone becoming a follower of Jesus, committing themselves to be a Christian, but not getting baptized. It just doesn't happen. Baptism is the immediate expression of one's conversion to Jesus. So if you want to be a Christian, you've got to believe the gospel, decide to repent of your sins, and then the first thing you ought to do is get baptized. And I've been working quite a bit here in this building to get our plumbing and heating and all of that figured out so that we can do baptisms right here instead of having to wait for the weather uh, to do them down at the lake. I have no problem baptizing in the lake. That's fine. Uh, But when somebody gets saved in January, we don't want to tell them, well, you've got to wait six months uh, before you can get baptized. Baptism should be immediate. Now, please don't take this in any way as shaming you if you've not yet been baptized or perhaps if your baptism wasn't done properly. Maybe you were never taught that you needed to be baptized. I have good, good news for you. We can solve that very quickly. Come talk to me after the service, and we'll baptize you. Maybe you aren't sure exactly when you were converted. Uh, not everyone has a clear testimony of a specific moment in time when their heart was transformed. Some people, it was a process of understanding and surrendering to Christ as Lord. And so you might not be able to look back in your life and pinpoint the exact moment of your conversion. That's okay. The question is, are you converted? I don't care if you know the exact date or not. Do you right now believe the gospel? Are you holding fast to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? 
Do you recognize your need of a Savior? Have you repented of your sins and given your life to Christ? If you can honestly answer yes to all of those questions, I have good news for you. We'll baptize you. Maybe you were baptized as an infant or as a very young child before you even understood the gospel. Uh, I have news for you. That wasn't baptism. Uh, baptism is the outward expression of your commitment to Christ, and you didn't make that commitment at two days old. Uh, in fact, I would highly doubt if you made that commitment at four years old. Uh, I was one of those kids who was raised in church. I was baptized at four years of age, and I barely remember it. But I can tell you one thing for certain. I wasn't converted at four years old. And anyone who knew me as a kid in early teen would tell you I lived like the devil until I was 14 when God completely changed my life. Because it wasn't until 14 that I truly repented and gave my life to Christ. And guess what? I got rebaptized. Because the whole point of baptism is to publicly declare your commitment to Jesus. At four years old, I didn't even understand what that meant. By the way, my wife has a, a similar story. She was baptized in her 20s because she looked back at her previous baptism and said, I wasn't even saved then. Uh, this is very common today. There's no shame whatsoever in saying, you know what, I think I need to get baptized uh, because my first baptism maybe wasn't done legitimately. Uh, by the way, we're going to have a baptism here, uh, hopefully next week. I need to talk to you about this more. Uh, for Diana, who has a similar testimony that she's been saved, uh, but her baptism, she believes her first baptism may not have been uh, in other words, it was prior to her actual conversion and understanding the gospel. So we're going to rebaptize her. Uh, no shame in that whatsoever. By the way, I'll just mention when, when we were talking about this in, in the context of uh, joining the church here, I asked her about this issue if she'd be willing to get rebaptized. And she said, sure, let's do it. Uh, that's a great attitude to have, uh, that Christians ought to be totally willing to declare publicly our commitment to Christ through baptism. That's a mark of genuine conversion. Acts 8, chapter, uh, Acts 8, verse 12 says, When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Uh, this is what Christians do. If you believe the gospel, you get baptized. Next mark of genuine conversion to Christ not only is water baptism, but spirit baptism, the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, we talked last week about what it means to be baptized uh, by the Holy Spirit, so if you weren't here again, I encourage you to go online and find that sermon. Uh, but one of the marks of genuine conversion is that you are given the Holy Spirit who lives within you and transforms you from the inside out. And this isn't just for the apostles, this isn't just for super-Christians, this is for all who have been truly saved. If you've repented and turned in faith to Christ, God's Spirit dwells within you. Romans 8 verse 9, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so all true Christians who have believed the gospel, repented of their sins, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know what that looks like or how you can know whether you've received the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5 gives us indicators of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Uh, so Paul gives in, in Galatians 5 two sections, two different lists of characteristics. The first is characteristics of an unsaved person. Uh, prior to, to faith in Christ, basically how all of us as sinners live our lives selfishly. The second list is the fruit of the Spirit. 
the evidence is that God's spirit is in you. Okay, so beginning in verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are non-Christians, people who are not a part of God's kingdom, living in a lifestyle of self-indulgence. Now here comes the second list. This is describing those who are in the kingdom, those who God's spirit is transforming to be more like Christ. Verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So a mark then of genuine conversion is the presence of the Spirit who transforms your life. Not all at once. Don't expect that after six months of following Jesus, you'll be perfect in all of these areas. But you should see growth. You should see each of these characteristics increasing in your life as God's Spirit works to change you over time. And this brings us to the last mark of genuine conversion, which is persevering faith. And that's found beginning in verse 42 and following. We're not going to go too far into these verses because we're going to cover them in more detail next time. Uh, but let me just read through the rest of the chapter quickly and we'll make one point. Verse 42 says, of these 3,000 who received the word, they were baptized and added to the church in Jerusalem. Then it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. True conversion to Christ is proven over time. Here in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people responded with repentance and were baptized that day. And those 3,000 were added to the church and they continued. They devoted themselves to the church. If someone uh, claims to be a Christian just because they were baptized or they made a profession of faith 20 years ago, but they haven't continued to serve and follow Jesus throughout their life, that is evidence that such a person was never truly converted. And this goes along a bit with the last point, because if someone's truly saved, if they have the Holy Spirit inside of them, the fruits of the Spirit, the evidences of that reality of being indwelled by God's Spirit will be seen in their lives. As Jesus himself said, you can tell a tree by its fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A diseased tree produces diseased fruit. And so in the case of these 3,000 who were saved on the day of Pentecost, they were the real deal. Uh, they didn't just claim to believe the gospel for a little while, like the shallow soil in Jesus' parable that ends up, the, the plant just dies very quickly. No, these folks really got it. They were genuinely saved. And that was demonstrated by their commitment and long-term faith. Colossians 1 verse 21, Paul writes, You who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. People who abandoned the faith never truly had saving faith. It isn't that they were converted and then somewhere along the line lost their salvation. No, if your salvation is real, it will last. The proof of it will be seen over time. Those who deconstruct their faith and abandon Christianity are simply demonstrating that they were never truly converted. John wrote in 1 John 2, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. A mark of genuine salvation is that it bears fruit continually, and not just for a short time. Again, Jesus' parable of the soils drives home this point. Sometimes the seed of the gospel lands in shallow soil. It appears to be growing for a little while, but then when trials of the life come, or when uh, cares of this world, the weeds grow up and choke the life out of it. But the seed that falls on good ground lasts. That plant grows and grows and continues to grow and produce fruit. That is a true convert to Christ. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word or if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. So six marks of genuine conversion. Number one, conviction of sin. Number two, belief in the gospel. Number three, repentance. Number four, baptism. Number five, indwelling of the spirit. Number six, perseverance. Your faith will be proven over time. Now, I want to close by going back, pointing out one more thing, because I fear that a sermon like this really could be taken to mean that we just sort of do these things and then we're saved, like a step-by-step process to merit our salvation. In reality, these are indicators, not steps. These are marks that conversion has taken place in a person's life, not a process by which you can be saved. You don't conjure up faith in the gospel. You don't just try to produce on your own the fruits of the Spirit. You don't uh, try really hard to make yourself repent. These are not steps to achieve a goal. These are aspects of God's work of conversion in a person's heart. Notice in verse 38 of our text, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You may remember that last week earlier in Acts 2, uh, Peter quotes from Joel's prophecy where it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an offer for everyone who wants it. But notice the difference here. He doesn't say here that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself will be saved. This is one of many indications throughout the book of Acts uh, that we'll see of the sovereignty of God over salvation. Uh, yes, from a human standpoint, we must repent and believe the gospel in order to be forgiven of our sins and sealed with the Holy Spirit. But there's a sense in which that's God's work in us. He calls us to himself and we respond to God's work with these indicators or marks that genuine conversion has taken place. Jesus explained it this way in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, if you've truly been converted to Christ, God was working in your heart before you ever made that choice. 
John 6, uh, 63, later in the same chapter, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You can't do this in and of yourself. This is God's work. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. This is speaking, I think, specifically of Judas Iscariot. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So you have there the reference to some who don't truly believe. Uh, Judas, in fact, who actually would go on to betray Jesus. And Jesus says, some of you even here among my disciples are not true converts. He knew from the beginning who those people were. And he, he says the difference between those who truly believed and don't truly believe is it hasn't been granted to you by the Father. No one can come to Christ without God first working in their hearts. It is impossible to do the work of conversion yourself. God has to do that to you. Now listen to what Paul wrote, writes in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is us prior to our conversion to Christ, uh, living our life however we want, living in sin and self-indulgence. And verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You were dead, Paul says, not sick dead, like Lazarus dead. Uh, Lazarus had no chance of making himself alive. When Jesus called into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out, and then Lazarus gets up and, and walks out of his grave, nobody looked at Lazarus and said, man, good job. Uh, that was incredible how you just kind of came back to life like that. No, everybody recognized that Jesus had called Lazarus back to life. Lazarus had nothing to do with it. He was laying there dead. But God can breathe life into a dead corpse and cause it to live again. And that's the analogy that Paul uses to describe how we were all dead in our sins, hopeless of changing on our own. But God, rich in mercy, because he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. He opened our eyes to understand and believe the gospel. He convicted our heart of the sin in our life. We are saved by grace through faith. And even that faith isn't of yourself. It was the gift of God so that no one can boast. Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. All of our salvation from the beginning to the end is the work of God in our heart. Repentance is a gift granted by God. 2 Timothy 2.25 tells us we are to correct opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God is the one who does this. He grants us repentance and leads us to know and believe the truth of the gospel. He brings us to our senses. He opens our eyes. He turns our heart and causes us to walk in his ways. So many passages we could look at for each one of those, but here's one more, just kind of a, an all-encompassing a text about the work of God in our conversion. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God speaking, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. From beginning to end, the work of conversion is all of God's grace. And here is why this matters. Sometimes I wonder if I'm going to persevere in my faith. Will I fall away from Jesus completely? Will I abandon my faith someday, reject God altogether? And the answer is, not if my conversion is real. If God has done this work of salvation in your heart, he will keep you to the end. He won't let you fall away. Because God keeps those who are truly his. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God started his work in you by convicting your heart of sin and your need for a savior, and if God took out that heart of stone and awakened you from spiritual death to believe the gospel and repent of your sins, if God has entered into your life through his spirit and is making you holy, then you can know that he's not done with you. He will continue that work of transforming your life, and he won't let you fall away. The same God who pulled you out of darkness into the light of the gospel will keep you there. He will hold you fast.